welcome to the day three podcast this week we have all of the crew here starting off with dalton hey everyone what's up and brian hey yo and will what's going on and i as always am marcos uh this week we have a episode that we've been talking a very long time about so today's topic is going to be the first in a series that we're tentatively titling back to basics and we're going over a lot of the more basic things to kind of help get everybody's competitive edge up by just finding all these corner cases and smaller things that all together help you get there but before we get into our main topic we have some current events that we'd like to chat about. On Monday, they announced the latest in a string of bannings for Pioneer, which was they have officially banned Oko, Thief of Crowns, and they have banned Nexus of Fate. Ah, crowd goes wild! <laughs> <laughs> I think we got an idea for, of for how Nexus. some of us feel about that. Uh, why don't we go around the table kind of like we did on our last episode and talk about what we think about the bannings. Let's start off with Nexus of Fate since some people here seem to be really excited about that. That card is just egregious. It shouldn't have been printed. That's, I mean, that, that's basically yeah. how I feel about it. Yeah, that actually sums up everything about how I feel about that card. It's so unfun. It shouldn't have been printed. Like it shouldn't have been, it probably shouldn't have been instant speed. The, it shouldn't have been a replacement effect. It should have been like a triggered ability so you could interact with it in some manner. That's, I mean, you know, it feels bad when you don't really read the card because it's a buy box promo, but you know you're going to face against it and you're packing like, you know, three consecrates in your Esper control deck and you're like, wow, these actually do nothing. So I would add the caveat that Nexus of Fate is egregious and never should have been printed in a standard legal format. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's fine in Commander. It's fine in your Powered or Modern Cubes. Go Wild, it's great. But there are way more problematic things when it becomes into a format like Standard or Pioneer. Uh, just because of the different things that you can do with it with Wilderness Reclamation, of course, being the big one, making that card just way more <laughs> accessible and playable than it ever should have been. And when you add cards to a format like Pioneer, it's it's not hard to see why you would want to take something like a standard legal deck and play it in Pioneer. Uh, obviously, the combination of Wilderness Reclamation and Nexus of Fate was problematic enough that it had to be dealt with, but the reason that it is so egregious, one of the ways you can tell it's so egregious, is that when you take cards that are super powerful in standard and you don't have to make any changes for it to be powerful in a more powered format, that's usually a good sign that the card is dangerous. And I think that Wizards agreed with us in this case. You know, I think it saw play for a hot second in uh, taking turns in modern. Yes, but then people remember that that deck is just bad, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I will say I do feel for those who really love the card because I'm on the border of, like, if I was able to play the card more, I'm sure I would have loved it enough that I would want to keep playing it in other formats. I'm just, like, that kind of evil, apparently. I don't know, but I know there's plenty of other people in the community who were in arms at the news that it was banned. That's because you want to win. You don't want a good game of Magic. <laughs> I mean, 
You can want both. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Yes, but Nexus is a zero-sum fun card. Also agree. So yeah, it's a, it's a really cool idea. It just maybe not for standard. Maybe not all the words that they put on it. You know, bits yeah. and bits and pieces of it. The the parts are cool. They really are. Take extra turn. That's a really cool effect. You know, we don't get those all the time. And I mean, if we're gonna be honest, it's not the card itself that was the problem. It was the style of deck that it was in. Took twenty minutes to kill you, rather than just like I'm gonna take all my turns. Or uh, you know, like the part the bottle. Yeah. Like the part the water veil deck where it's like, okay, cast part the water veil, make my land a 6-6 six, six and kill you with it in three turns. Like, cool. That's fair. I dig that. When you're just like, Nexus and plus Teferi and untap and do all these things and draw a bunch of cards and filter through my deck and you're like, can I get a coloring book or something, man? Like, It was standard KCI, basically. You just sat yeah. there and watched oh, them battle around forever until they eventually said, I win. Because there was a chance. Yes, because there's a slim chance, chance that's that they the could worst. brick. Yep. yep. All right. Well, the other card banned, which also was touted as an egregious mistake, was Oko Thief of Crowns. Oko has now joined Standard and Historic ban lists, and now is banned in Pioneer. What do we all think about that? Hey, don't forget about Brawl. And Brawl. <laughs> Get out of there, Brawl. <laughs> Well, it's okay. Everybody has forgotten about Brawl. Uh, <laughs> more so than Oko, I'm pretty certain players have been banned from Brawl because uh, Oof. Oh. that might be something yeah. we get into later. Oh, man. I don't even know about this brawl day event, which I don't know if I'm glad or upset about it. You have to it. pay to play. You yeah, have to that's basically pay what it is. To, play the, to play Brawl. Yeah, they're, they're can, putting but, a queue behind a paywall, basically. But we can't have an everyday queue because the wait times would be too long. Right. Unless but we he, pay 10000 So I'm very curious what the business model is for how can you have a format that no one wants to play and decides <laughs> the best way to make people want to play it is make them pay <laughs> to play a format they don't want to play. That's a damn good question. Uh, I'm not saying... That's a damn good question. There we go. Weekly segment of the week. Dalton explains basic economics. Oh, man. I'm no business expert, but I am certainly interested in uh, looking for a position, uh, Wizards. I'm happy to help. Awesome. When it comes to Oko and the Pioneer format, what do y'all think? So the problem with Oko is that it creates these gameplay patterns that are just repetitive. And it's not even... You know, like, yes, Storm is repetitive, but it's deterministically repetitive. Oko exists in such a way that you're not dead, and you're not guaranteed to die. But all I'm saying is that when everything's a 3-3, why are we bothering? <laughs> so, so, I think the biggest reason that Oko has stuck around for so long is that Wizards really didn't want to give in. Players are going to complain forever about why cards are too powerful and why cards need to be banned. And a lot of that is just players being upset because their pet deck doesn't work. <laughs> their pet deck's not good, it won't be good, and banning cards will not make their pet deck good unless you just get rid of the format. But with Oko, players identified this problem and were actually right about it, so Wizards probably just tried to stuck off for as long as they could so that players didn't feel like 
oh, well, we got him this time. It's finally banned. We did the thing so that players don't feel like they can just always complain until the thing gets banned. Yeah, so the problem I see with Oko is, like I mentioned, it's deterministic. Either As soon as Oko comes down, you either lose or you spend your next two or three turns dealing with Oko. And so it just creates the same repetitive gameplay patterns. That's a really good point. Yeah, you're taking at least two turns off to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, unless you have some sort of, you know, Planeswalker removal. Which Wizards has said they're going to make more better Planeswalker removal, you know, like Fry, which cleanly deals with Oko. (laughs) That, I think, might be the biggest atrocity of this whole thing. They printed such a beautiful cycle of color hosers in m20 that are seeing play in basically every format they're legal in and they completely whiffed with oko's loyalty and fry so the weirdest thing about fry is the fact that they wanted oko to be a walker that did not die to fry it was an actual intention and so the big question is why (laughs) if we want to make fry a card why are we printing things that specifically avoid it because if it can't do the job it was intended to do then why did we even bother i mean was fry literally just to kill tefri because like i mean i'm fine with that but it also kills jace the mind sculptor it gets the new elspeth that was previewed Ooh, but that can just escape Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the fact that Fry does five damage is super relevant. Five damage kills Baneslayer Angel, Lyra Dawnbringer. It kills a Jace the Mind Sculptor that ticks up. It kills uh, Teferi Time Raveler, Teferi Hero Dominaria. There are so many control cards that die to five, uh, five damage. And Oko is just a problem for that reason, is because the best solution you have. Doesn't even matter. How do you really feel, Dalton? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Teferi Hero of Hearthstone is also a card that... I don't know if it should be banned in Pioneer. I just think, like... I just think it shouldn't be a card because its static ability is just so... Just... It's unfun. It really is. And so, with Fry, the, the good thing is that it's still... With Teferi, you... When it ticks up, it, it dies. Like, yes, Teferi yes. creates annoying gameplay patterns, but you can cleanly get rid of it. Oko, not so much. If you are trying to kill Oko with a fry, you only have about a 50% chance, because if they tick up and make a food, you're you're out of luck. You cannot get rid of that Oko unless you take your entire turn or multiple burn spells to answer a single card. Yeah, no, I agree. It's um, it, getting rid of the Oko puts you such such a disadvantage card wise and mana wise that yeah, it feels deterministic. I mean, as far as main deckable answers that actually cost less mana than Oko, we've got Dreadbore. I mean, that's if it. you just. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you, you could play Noxious Grasp if you just really want to hedge green-white. Oh, uh, Elemental Blast. There we go. I mean, just technically you can Mystical Dispute it, as long as you are prepared to counter it when it's coming down every single time. Uh, I, I think the thing is, 
you have cards that can answer it. Like, there are things for it, but the problem is everything that answers it is black. And so unless you have black, you know, Noxious Grass, Spark Harvest, Hero's Downfall, Murderous Rider, you're not killing it. That thing is there forever. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's talk on something a little bit bigger than just the Bannings and Pioneer. Uh, in the regularly scheduled BNR announcement today, they made a note that there is going to be no scheduled dates for banned and restricted announcements in the future. Uh, they're saying that the philosophy for this is they want to be a little bit more flexible with when they can make announcements for bannings whenever it's needed for a format. Uh, assuming this came from the fact that they changed the date of the BNR announcement to uh, for Field of the Dead, basically to accommodate for after a major event so that they wouldn't affect people's testing for that event, but still make sure they were able to give players enough time to test for the next major event where they knew they wanted to have this card banned for it. So uh, I guess my question here for you guys is, what do you think about this? Is this a smart move on their part? Is this really reactionary? How do you think this fits in with how players are going to be preparing for different formats? Okay, so you know that whole Dane Cook joke about getting hit in the face by a grab hammer from a camper in Halo? That's how ban <laughs> that's how bans are gonna be now. Even if you know it's coming, you're like, oh well, maybe they won't ban it, you know. And then it's just like the second you buy the cards or the second you start testing the deck, it's just gonna be like surprise ban. You know, it's I I I think it's it's good and bad. It's good because now you don't have that, well, there's a scheduled ban, so if they have to emergency ban something, it's like, whoa, guys, come on, like, that was unnecessary, you have a scheduled ban date, but at the same time, there's no, there's no talk of if they're gonna update us on if they're, you know, if they're like, hey, this card might be a problem, we're kind of watching it, you know, maybe next BNR it'll be gone, instead it's just gonna get to a point where it's a problem, and then it's just, they decide to axe it and everybody's kind of like caught out of nowhere with it so does that imply that because they mentioned that they would try to at least warn us you know a week or two in advance does every is every announcement of a bnr update definitely going to be a ban or possibly an unban or are they just going to say hey we're gonna have a bnr announcement next week no changes uh, what they said was specifically that they're going to make ban and restricted announcements on Mondays always, but it could basically be any given Monday. I don't think they're even going to make announcements that they're going to do a banning because at that point they might as well just ban the thing. So uh, yeah, it's basically any Monday. I think another bright side of <clears throat> these no more scheduled ban restricted is the fact that one of the things we're overlooking is the fact that there's now really no such thing as an emergency ban because everything will just be banned. And that's another way of just saying, hey, players, we're done hearing you complain about literally everything because there's no emergency bans. They're never going to do it. And I'm sure there will be a caveat of like, hey, we are guaranteed not going to do a ban and restricted between now and this next mythic championship because they don't have to plan a schedule for yeah for like two weeks or something yeah 
the Mythic Championships based around Ban Restricted and vice versa. And especially because if there's one thing Wizards loves, they love announcing announcements. And so I do imagine we'll see a lot more guarantees of no bans than we have seen ever before. Well, to read from the announcement that they made today about it, they did say, and I quote, we'll still do our best to avoid making changes to a format too soon before a major event so as not to negatively impact players' plans and preparations. That said, given the number of major events now being held nearly every weekend around the world, and the need to make sure that we're addressing the health of formats in a timely manner, some conflicts may arise. We'll do what we can to give advance notice if we're able. So That was just a lot of fluff. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like, we will try was, to not was... screw up your plans, but there's no way that we can guarantee we will never mess up your testing for an event because there's too many events. So we'll do the yeah, best we so can. Someone somewhere is going to get screwed. Yeah, Watsy just politicked us. But to be fair, I think that realistically, <laughs> that's the best they can do. I mean, if they're going to make changes for the health of different formats, I like giving them some flexibility to do that because I also know that oh, yeah. likely means they're not going to go out of their way to say, hey, so this Mythic Championship is this weekend. Let's ban three cards and throw the entirety of all of your weeks of testing out of the window. <laughs> like, if anything... You can tell that based off of their previous actions that that won't be the case more often than not. Who this will really affect are more, oh, I have like a local uh, WPNQ at my game store in town and I might need to redo an entire deck with like a week's notice because it'll always be on a Monday. So let's, you'll at least have that Monday through whenever uh, the rest of the week to prepare for your event, which isn't the worst, I suppose. I also wonder if we are going to see more ban and restricted announcements occur on Mondays before SCG or Card Titan events, as opposed to the weeks before things like Players Tour or Grand Prix events, because if Wizards only has to worry about their own events as far as planning announcements, I wonder if they're going to purposefully try to hold out until after large events that they are running just to keep players as content and happy as possible. That's an interesting question. In in a way, though, but, I mean, you can... Playing on the SCG tier, you can get points to get in the Rivals League, right? Yep, you can get to... Yeah, you'll so, get I mean, it's not like officially... Yeah, it's not like officially sponsored, but it's actually a legit avenue to get into Wizards, you know, the their eSports e League, whatever you want to call it, the... Yeah, the Pro League. Yeah, Pro League, there you go. Yeah, getting people into the acronym for the really cool thing that you can do as a player. PTs, It's a PT, one way or the other. <laughs> yes. Those, we're going back to PTs, but they're not the same PTs as PTs were before. They're different PTs. Yeah, you know, paper tournaments. <laughs> PT, paper tournament. Unless it's Worlds. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, we have a really great topic that we've spent a lot of time actually preparing for and building up towards. So uh, now we're going to pitch it over to our main topic for the week, which again is uh, the concept of bolting the bird. We'll see you in a minute.
Okay, so for this week's topic, we're going to be looking into the concept of Bolt the Bird and ultimately what that means when it comes to heuristics when you're playing Magic. First off, we need to talk about heuristics, and this isn't a concept that everybody may be familiar with. So, Dalton, why don't you tell us about heuristics? So, heuristics, um, as per their definition, are any approach to problem solving or self-discovery that employs a practical method not guaranteed to be optimal, perfect, or rational, but nevertheless sufficient for reaching an immediate, short-term goal, which, in our usage of that today, is essentially the little phrases and monikers that you might use in magic that generally describe your attitudes and goals or aids for the game. So for example, bolt the bird being a, you know, a common place saying, meaning that if your opponent is attempting to accelerate on mana, such as through a, a birds of paradise, elvish mystic, Llanowar elves, then it's usually a good idea to use a bolt or any sort of removal spell to stop them from accelerating. And so what we want to dive into today is figuring out whether or not that heuristic, that phrase, has any sort of real bearing on gameplay. Is it always better to bolt the bird, or is it best to leave up your removal for the threat they deploy on turn two, now that they have three mana? Bolt the bird even goes back to Alpha, doesn't it? Birds of Paradise and Lightning Bolt both printed in the very first set of Magic ever produced. So it's been around for 26 years, probably. People have probably been bolting birds for ever. Yeah, that's true. Say so There weren't many other creatures that you really wanted to bolt either. Those spells were a lot stronger than, than they might be now, and those creatures were a lot weaker than they might be now. Yeah, who played creatures in 1993? Get out of here. People that traded their black lotuses for shivan dragons. <laughs> also true. But yeah, so you're, you're totally right on that, Dalton. A heuristic basically goes to us establishing what are the defaults for the best lines of play in scenarios that you're going to encounter more often than not. And I think a really important baseline for heuristics is that heuristics are a great place to start from. And they'll help you improve by giving you a good baseline for what is generally correct way more often than not. We're talking like 80% of the time, heuristic is going to be the way you want to go. But another important thing to this, which we'll touch on as well, is when do you want to break from these heuristics? Yeah, the heuristics are a very good starting point. But I think what really starts to separate good magic players from really great magic players is their ability to quickly determine when heuristics are correct and when they need to deviate from that standard uh, method of play to achieve an optimal line. I actually, whenever I think about phrases like this, um, I'm reminded of an acting class that I took in college. And the reason for this is that our instructor always told us about the rules of acting. There were certain things you had to follow and there were certain things that you should do that would give you the best performance or put you in the best mindset for the character that you were trying to assume. And he said that, you know, you always follow these rules unless you don't. And that <laughs> the sign that you had a full understanding and a full grasp, or rather that you had a full understanding of these rules was that when you knew when to break them. And so I thought that that was an incredibly weird way of putting it for an acting one class, but actually ended up applying to a lot more is 
rules are great, but you have to know when to break them. And you shouldn't break them unless you know you're breaking them. Yeah, so, I, I agree. That's, that's pretty thanks, sound advice, Craig. actually. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I really like about that is that you can break rules as long as you understand what you're doing, as opposed to just, I'm going to do this just for reasons, which is completely the wrong way. With that, obviously, the one we've talked about the most is bolting the bird. And so I want to throw the question out there. Why is it that we have this general saying of bolt the bird? What is so threatening about an O1 creature that I should use my premium removal, potentially my premium reach in a game, to take that off the table? Will, looks like you uh, want to hop on that one. Yeah, you know, being the person that's played the least modern here, probably. <laughs> um, like, the whole concept of bolting the bird goes more into how games of magic play out and like with deck building and you're thinking like why would i use three damage to kill a zero one that can't even attack my life total and the thing is what the bird represents is the fact that your opponent wants to play uh, more expensive spells sooner than they should be allowed like you know sooner than their one land a turn normal play pattern uh, so by killing that you're going to slow down their game plan hopefully long enough for you to be able to win before they can deploy that high CMC threat that they're trying to accelerate into. It could also cut them off of certain colors of mana. If they've got forest bird and they need access to red or white or black or whatever, you may have been able to shut off half of their hand. And on top of that, it ends up meaning that you could be cutting them off from not just the one extra mana that they'll be using on turn two to put out their three drop, but if you don't take care of that sooner, that one drop could turn into three or four mana that they're using for casting way more spells down the line. And that's an advantage that's really hard to come back from. Yeah, exactly. And then if you want to get into specific decks, you know, you have your Jeskai Ascendancy combo deck where it's like, that could actually kill you. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you have a lot of reasons for wanting to take these things off the table. You know, you want to keep them from you know, having that access to the, their third or their fourth color of mana, you want to make sure they don't accelerate. But if I have a three damage removal spell in hand, why don't I just shoot down what they're playing on turn two? You know, clearly they're uh, trying to get to that, so why don't I just get that thing off the table? They're, I mean, they're going to hit three lands anyway, right? Uh, eventually they might hit three lands. I mean, you don't know what their hand looks like unless you've taken a peek at it or thought sees them or something of that nature. Um but it's not even so much about their turn two threat that could be the issue. It could be that if you don't kill that bird now and then you spend that mana to kill their their turn two play that costs three mana, but then they have the bird for the turn after that and it kind of snowballs out of control. It could, potentially. Sure. For sure. And there, you're also encountering kind of matching up what your game plan is doing versus what theirs is eventually going to be. If you leave that bird on the table, then you're not going to be able to proactively put creatures on the battlefield that can line up well with theirs. If your two drop is, let's just say, a grizzly bear and their three drop is something like a gruel spellbreaker that's going to become a 4-4 four four or just come in and roll right over your grizzly bear, then suddenly any play you're making after that is just inherently weaker than what they're able to put out. It's is your 2-2 two two or your 2-drop going to be as good as their 3-drop? Is your 3-drop going to be as good as their 4-drop if the game continues in that manner? You also bring up something that a lot of 3-drops that are playable in the formats where Lightning Bolt and Birds of Paradise are legal are going to have more than 3 toughness and are going to be a lot more difficult to remove than that bird. Yeah, 
uh, actually, when you were saying that, my mind went straight to Dominaria standard. And the reason being is that Dominaria brought Llanowar Elves back into standard. And one of the scariest things your mono green opponent could do would be a Llanowar Elf on turn one into a Steel Leaf Champion on turn two. And to immediate go to game two. Yeah, and so Steel Leaf <laughs> Champion is scary because it's a 5-4 for three mana. It also can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. So if you do put out a Grizzly Bear on turn two, it doesn't matter because you're not blocking with it. And so in that case, you also didn't have high quality removal spells. Like you didn't have bolts. Um, I don't believe there was no fatal push in Dominaria standard at the same time. Nope. And so your nope. best answer was usually something like shock. You can shock a Lanoir Elf. You cannot effectively shock a Steel Leaf champion. That yeah. was And more recent example of that is in standard with a Gilded Goose. Yeah. Uh Shocking that Gilded Goose in a mono red deck meant you didn't have to deal with a turn two Oko that immediately ticked up to six loyalty that you could just never deal with after that. Yeah, and then, you know, the Oko is making food that they can use for life gain or to feed the goose some more. Um, but going back to Dalton's analogy with Dominaria Standard, another reason to kill that elf right away is because, you know, they can do the the elf into the Steel Leaf Champion and then either play another big thing or you know, Galta's coming down soon after that. If you don't get rid of, you know, if you get rid of the elf, you might slow him down enough where you can actually deal with those other threats that they have. Gosh, I forgot Galta was a card. Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> right. That's the kind of snowball effect that happens if you don't take care of the bird right away and just let them get way out of control. Because again, you're letting them play their later game that much earlier. Great. So it makes sense. I, I think bolting the bird sounds reasonable. But are there any circumstances where we shouldn't? I mean, I I have been a an aggro player forever. If my modern deck isn't running four lightning bolts, then I'm not happy. I want to bolt something. <laughs> but why would I not bother bolting the bird? Like, is there any reason why I shouldn't? You know, is this a rule or is it, as we've mentioned, a heuristic? Um, I, I definitely feel like it's more heuristic because, for I mean, if you're just going in blind game one, you have no idea what your opponent's playing... I think it's always correct to bolt the bird, given that you have no information, because, you know, things could go very bad very quickly for you if you do not, and worst case scenario is like, yeah, you used one of your removal spells on their mana accelerant and helped make the game more fair in terms of mana production. Um, but when you know your your opponent's specific deck, say, say you know they're ramping into something that's four mana or larger, like, I don't know, an Ugin or... Um, uh, let's think like Pioneer, stuff like that, like, uh, I don't know, Meteor questing Golem. Beast. Yeah, Questing Beast. You know, something four mana or bigger, it's like you have a bolt in your hand, but you also have a Disdainful Stroke that you'll be able to play, and you don't really have any other plays to make. You can just hold up that Disdainful Stroke, counter that play, and then bolt the bird, and then they're really far behind. Because then you've also traded up on mana as well. There's also the case where you don't care what they play because you've got a Sweeper in hand, and you're going to kill both their bird and whatever they played off the bird, all in one fell stroke. Yeah, and both of you are touching on, I think, what the really key aspect to evaluating this heuristic is, which is, what else is in your hand? Do you have a board wipe that can reset any of the damage that their acceleration could do? Because in that case, you might want to bait them into committing more to the board, put out one or two chump blockers to kind of uh, protect yourself a little bit until you can deploy that board wipe and then take over the game from there but if you don't 
if you don't have a disdainful stroke, but you do have other things that are more in line with a regular curve, then bolting the bird is a really good option because then you can deploy your two drop against their two drop and it's a much more fair game for you. Yep. I think that's fair. Um, I think the only other question then, as far as birds are concerned, what if I also want to accelerate? If I have my own bird in hand, do you think it's better to try to deal with theirs? Or should I just deploy my game plan and hope that that's enough to get there? I think that really depends on what is in your... If you have some, like, you know, like your best payoff in your hand, then I say you go for it. But if you just have, like, you know, one of your middle-of-the-road kind of curve fillers, I guess, um, you know, like that's one of those questions that, like, I have a hard time answering these in a general way because I'm always like, well, it depends <laughs> on what they're playing and what you have, and, you know... Is it game one, game two? Do you know what their game plan is? Like that, That's just how my brain works automatically. So maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question, so I'm going to shoot it over to Marcos here. <laughs> well, the one, and I agree, context matters a lot here, and I think that's going to be something that comes up a lot when we talk about heuristics in general. Uh, but let's take this one into something a little more concrete. Recently, we had a standard where... Basically, every deck was sitting there in mirror match going turn one, Gildy Goose, turn two, Oko. And in the mirrors, you saw that being the first one to deploy an Oko also meant you were the first one to deploy the power of having that Oko on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Your opponent resolved anything else after that or turned one of their foods into a creature or whatever. Then you had more loyalty on your Oko so you could swap out a food for an animated food and bash in. You just had way more options open to you because you were able to create a food to feed the goose to put out more powerful threats. Overall, it typically ended up working out in those mirror matches, especially where you really wanted to be able to deploy your threat first. And if you weren't able to, if you could stop their threat, you should stop it. I mean, that's why we saw, what, four mainboard Noxious Grass and four mainboard Mystical Disputes. Yep. It's all context dependent, and it really just depends on, you know, what the matchup is, what the metagame looks like, and what your hand looks like compared to what you feel like their hand is going to be. But that's why the heuristic exists. If you don't have the answers to that, then just bolt the bird and move on. Yep. Pretty much, yeah. Always assume the worst, right? <laughs> Can't go wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, don't, don't play around the, oh, well, I'm sure my opponent's only playing a two-drop. You know, they're no. definitely going to attack with Lamar. Swing in with the bird, send a message. Opponent is, opponent is always lucky. <laughs> yeah, opponent doesn't keep one lander with a mana elf. <laughs> and then meanwhile, I'm sitting over here going, cool, I just need to draw a threat. Oh, look, another Lanor elves. I'll just have three of them on the battlefield. <laughs> Not even playing Mono there's, Green Devotion. There's nothing quite three so threatening as a Lanor elf wearing Rancor. <laughs> I mean, that's a thing you can do. <laughs> okay, so Dalton... Where is a time where taking care, using a removal spell on the bird wouldn't be ideal and you would want to break this kind of heuristic? So the first reason that I would recommend not, you know, getting rid of the bird with your removal spell would be that the bird is coming down on something like turn 9, turn 10, way beyond the point where one mana of acceleration is as relevant. You know, if, if they're already at 9 mana, it really doesn't matter if they're at 10 mana. You're dead anyways. Um, <laughs> however, um, the other time that you would consider maybe not getting rid of the, the bird so early would be that if the removal spell in your hand is something like a Path to Exile or even an Assassin's Trophy, something that would provide them 
with a land back because it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to manage their resources if those resources come in the form of lands, just given the difference between land interaction and creature interaction spells. Is I don't know about you all and about what decks everyone out there plans to run, but my deck has zero ways in it to deal with lands that are an issue. Uh, my deck has, let's see, four, eight about 10 different ways to interact with creatures that are an issue. So just looking at those numbers, it makes a lot of sense that I want their resources to be bottlenecked in creatures as opposed to the lands available. Now, you do have a trade-off there. If they have a Birds of Paradise, then they have five colors of mana. If I path to exile that, they still have, you know, the total of probably three mana that they would have on turn two anyways. However, they are now limited to one or two, maybe even three different colors of mana based upon what lands they have out. Because Birds of Paradise allows for mana of any color, it does make it a lot more valuable than a land. Yeah, if you're playing against a Niv-Mizzet deck, that's <laughs> one thing where you know you want five <laughs> different colors of mana as soon as possible. Yeah, but if it's like a Ponza deck, then ultimately it ends up being the same whether they have a Birds of Paradise or a Mountain. It's also important to know um, if you happen to have the information if your opponent has any basic lands in their deck. Because yep. if you know they're out of basics, you can path that bird all day or a day. <laughs> True story. Oh, definitely. The, the construction of their deck, whether you know it as 100% gospel what they have versus whether you can assume based on prior matchups or deck lists you've seen does make a big difference. Um, for example, if you are playing against a human's opponent in Modern, uh, I believe the only basic lands they run are islands and islands and plains. Is that still does that still sound correct? Yep. So if you get rid of their noble hierarch, then there's a chance that I guess noble hierarch costs a green, uh, but. <laughs> But you are possibly cutting them off of green mana if maybe it came out with something like an ether vial or a another way, shape, or form of being deployed. And also there, you can rely a little bit more on what your deck is built around. For example, if you're a land destruction heavy deck, or at the very least you run a couple of Field of Ruins, a couple of Ghost Quarters, and you know that you're going to have access to those, then taking care of the fact that they only have a couple of basics in their deck generally is fine because ultimately you will get to the point where your ghost quarters or any other land destruction spells will just be wastelands effectively. Same deal with effects like Lane and Arbiter where they usually can't go and find a basic land because you're limiting their ability to find that land. True. So... Dalton brings up a really good point on how to work around different types of removal spells uh, versus your typical bird. But let's switch up the bird a little bit or add a little extra element to this. So let's say your opponent plays both an Aether Vial and a Bird of Paradise. Let's say you're on turn two, you both played land, they spit out a vial and a bird. You have an Abrade in hand. So deal three damage to a creature or destroy a target artifact. Which do you kill? So, uh, are we assuming we're in game one? Yeah. Okay. So, if we don't know anything about what our opponent has done so far, I'm just aware that there's a Birds of Paradise and there's an Aether Vial. 
So I think I would usually tend towards destroying the ether vial because in my mind that can create the most amount of mana advantage because Birds of Paradise is going to provide you with one extra mana each turn it's out. Whereas something like an Aether Vial is going to provide you with what is essentially one extra mana the first turn that it's out. And then from that point on, it's going to essentially provide you with, you know, X plus one mana. So the next turn it will provide you with what is essentially two extra mana at instant speed of any color. And then three, four. What? Am I dumb? No, I think no, I think no, everybody no, else wanted to say the exact the same, same point. Thing. Okay, uh, yeah, Brian and I both signaled at the same time, and I think what we were going to say is also the reason to kill Ether Vial. I think the reason to kill Ether Vial is correct is because it also allows your opponent to play outside the normal rules of Magic, i.e., they can put creatures onto the battlefield at instant speed when they normally would not be able to. Which yeah, is if you flash in that blocker, and it's like, <laughs> sure, right. that's the kind of Magic we're playing. For everybody listening at home, when Brian went quiet, he was shrugging. Usually, yeah, that's what's going on. When 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 one of us goes quiet, we're shrugging. Okay. So then, let's switch that scenario up a little bit, and let's keep the same abrade in our hand. But instead, let's say our opponent just cast and resolved a Stoneforge Mystic, and they just tutored up a Batter Skull, for instance. Uh, what do you do with your abrade at this point? So once again, if we assume we're in game one and you know we have no prior information about what the opponent is doing, we, we see Stoneforge Batter Skull, we have a pretty good idea of what they want to be doing, but you know, there's a lot of different variants, a lot of things could happen. My next question that I want to go to is whether I'm on the play or whether I'm on the draw. Because on the play, chances are I've already tapped out with an aggro-style deck and have, you know, gone through stuff. I don't have a response to this. Uh, if I'm on the draw, then there's a chance that, you know, I have a Wild coddle, and now, after their Stoneforge is out, I have two mana open. I, I have that ability to hold the Abrade up. So I think that's an important distinction of where you're at. You know, we, we have this Crossroads here, and the Crossroads is, if we destroy the Stoneforge Mystic now, we deal three damage to a creature, then... The opponent still has a batter skull in hand and will, you know, theoretically, uh, or theoretically not, depending on whose side of the table, get to five mana at some point in the near future. And a 4-4 four, four lifelink is definitely enough to start stabilizing. But then the other issue is if we wait to, you know, abrade the batter skull, then we leave them with the Stoneforge Mystic, and if they have something else in hand, you know, if if they by chance already had a sort of fire and ice or feast and famine, some other artifact that they can put in play at instant speed, then we are losing out on that tempo because they're just going to do that the next turn. Honestly, my, my self-interest leads on erring towards destroying the Stoneforge Mystic. And that's because, as I mentioned, I don't want them to get to five lands. If that happens, I have failed. And chances are I probably already lost the game by that point. If not on board, then... I know where the the game is going. So that's right. personally where I stand on it. Yeah, um, you know, you brought up another good point with that. The fact that Stoneforge lets them depl to deploy their equipment at instant speed, I think, is one of the real the real determining factors for me. Because, you know, I, I play the more mid-range style deck, so it's like the game's probably going to five lands, regardless of whether I kill the Stoneforge or not. 
but killing the Stoneforge now and knowing they have the Batter Skull and being able to anticipate that coming down, whereas if I leave the Stoneforge out, it's like, yeah, they could have a Batter Skull, they could also have something else they could flash in, and that makes it more problematic for me to know how to play optimally. So I, I also agree with killing the Stoneforge. I'm trying to think of a good reason to kill, to wait and kill the Batter Skull. Let's just split we... the difference and deal three damage to the germ token. Sure. Hey, there you go. Show that guy who's boss. <laughs> right. I, I think it depends on your deck. I mean, if you have like, if you have a counter, well, if you have counters for the battle call, you still want to kill the Stoneforge Mystic. I, there is something in your deck, obviously, that you would know that, hey, it doesn't matter if they can bring it at instant speed or there's obviously situations. I can't personally think of one right now. I mean, maybe if, like, I had an Always Dust in hand and I was going to have Tron in two turns or, you know, or I was going to have seven mana in two turns and then, sure, play your Batter Skull, wipe the board, be done with both of them, and save the Abraid mm-hmm. for something else or, you know. That Batter Skull sticks around through an Always Dust. It, the Germ goes. It does. The Batter Skull sticks. It does stick, but then they have to pay mana to bounce it back to the hand and replay it. The elusive deck mm-hmm. running Always Dust and Abraid. <laughs> <laughs> Mono Red Eldrazi, get at me. Green Red Tron, we're bringing it back, right, Marcos? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, in that case, what if we switch up the scenario and instead of your opponent fetching up a Batter Skull with their Stoneforge Mystic, you see that you have an Abraden hand because you're playing, let's say, Blue Red Delver style, and your opponent pulls up a Sword of Fire and Ice. Then what do you do? I mean, <laughs> let's, that let's is take it to our blue pro- red mage here. What do you think, Brian? Protection from my deck. <laughs> what you do is you kill the Stoneforge and you hold up Spell Pierce for the sword. That is that is a valid <laughs> that is a valid line, Brian. That is a valid line. Hey, no, I, like that. I actually really like that line because if you have the Spell Pierce, you can't pierce the Stoneforge activation. True. Right. Yeah. No, I I definitely think that. You'll notice a theme here. A lot of it comes down to what your deck is doing and what your hand looks like. Is if you have the answer, you know, they they turn to the Stoneforge and obviously they look to at your end step on turn three, put into play that sort of fire and ice. Well, if you can guarantee that you can kill their Stoneforge on two and you can guarantee pierce their sword on three, then yeah, that, that gets rid of both problems pretty effectively. But if you only have that abraid and you don't have a pierce or you have to choose do i destroy the stoneforge now or do i destroy this sword i think you definitely want to wait and destroy that sword because in a, a style deck of what you're trying to play a one two is a lot less scary of a threat than a one two that could automatically gain protect or sorry a three four that could gain protection from your deck and card advantage and reach, or not, True. not ability reach, but in game reach. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So all this talk about spell piercing and counterspelling brings up another good heuristic uh, that, especially if you're trying to play into more controlling aspects of the game, uh, you definitely want to start figuring out sooner than later. Which is, what spells do you counter with your counterspells? How do you counter them if you have multiple counter spells? I mean, if you're staring at a hand full of spell pierce and a cancel and your opponent plays a like growth spiral or something, do you counter it? If so, what do you counter it with? What do you do there? 
How many lands do they have? Are they running Field of the Dead? What format is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think th- this might be partly why I do have a slightly difficult time playing permission controls because my brain goes through too many uh, possible scenarios and all that kind of stuff. When you know, when even when playing these matchups, it's like, okay, well, you know, what do they have in their hand? And it becomes difficult for me to narrow it down as to um, what might be the best line of play for me personally. Spell Pierce very specifically is an interesting card because it is so narrow. It's a non-creature spell and it's only a tax effect. So there's very few things that it hard counters that you really want to be spell piercing on turn two or turn three. You know, maybe they're tapping out for something really big and then and they don't leave up the two mana and you get them there, but that's pretty rare. Yeah, especially in like standard and pioneer and historic, um, there's not too many things that are that large that are non-creature spells. Although you will be thankful for it when your opponent casts that Ember Cleave when they're attacking you, right, Dalton? Oh yes. <laughs> okay. Here's the Ember Cleave. Sounds like an achievement that should unlock you a trophy in arena. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it is fantastic. So then, would you say that the basic heuristic for counter spells would be using your conditional counters first and foremost along with using your counter spells that are more taxing permission based before your outright hard counters like an absorb or a cancel oh absolutely yeah yeah 100 i mean it, it say say um i don't know, say i have a spell pierce and a negate in hand um i'm on the play and my opponent tries to turn two thought erasure me spell pierce in that all day because that negate is going to be, it's you know, it's it's more versatile as the game goes on. On the flip side, it's sometimes difficult if your if your two counter spells are spell pierce and cryptic command, for example. That's one versus four mana that you have to hold up on your opponent's turn, and that can sometimes be a big tempo loss if they don't play anything worth countering. I, I think another question that you have to bring up is what your opponent's board looks like. So, for example, if my opponent has, um, you know, some lands open and I know that they're on a more controlling style of deck, then chances are I'm more likely to try to counter that Planeswalker spell with my Dovin's Veto that can't be countered versus something like a Negate, which they could then negate or spell Pierce back. Okay. So now that we have an idea of using conditional counter spells and a basic heuristic for getting the things that are more conditional like essence scatter and negates out of the way before outright hard counters like cancel and didn't say please let's talk a little bit more about what we're actually countering this is something that i've struggled with a lot when i've been trying to play the control game more is knowing do i counter their card draw spell do i counter their threats do i counter this planeswalker versus trying to destroy it I mean, how do we decide a hierarchy of what needs to be countered? Man, I, I really wish I remember who, who wrote about this, but it was about when I started getting more competitive, especially like more into the standard competitive stuff, and I was playing a lot of control decks. And that was a big thing for me as well, Marcus, is like, you know, what do you counter? Well, game one, if you, know, if you really boil things down, it's actually usually correct to counter their card draw because game one control decks have more dead cards against other control decks <clears throat> than any other archetype, I believe. 
So I think it's correct to counter their card draw because that prevents them from digging to their cards that actually matter in game one. Now, in games two and three, I think you just want to counter their threats because they're just going to have more, you know, they're going to have more threats. So I think it's I think it's more correct to do that. Counter the cards that you have more difficulty dealing with. Interesting. So in a control mirror earlier on, you have your Kaya's Wraths and your Cry of the Carnariums and all these other cards that just do virtually nothing in the matchup until you're like being beaten down by a 1-1. But realistically, like you're having a lot more cards in hand that don't actually do anything that you're not going to waste your mana on spending. So it doesn't matter that you have seven cards in hand if four of them are just dead and don't do anything in the match. Yeah, so there precisely. it is more important to not draw the right spells. Exactly. Like, I mean, just, you know, try and look at it from the other side of the table. If you were playing control v control and you're like, you know, end of turn, say, say go back to like uh, glimmer of genius, you know, the blue red control decks. Um, if you're in that, that mirror match and, you know, you go end of turn Glimmer of Genius and you're the one thing you're thinking is please don't counter this because I have like three removal spells in hand that are dead and I need other <laughs> cards. I mean, right? That's correct, right? Yeah, Harness Lightning does nothing mm -hmm. here against you. Help. Yeah, exactly. I guess another question there also comes down to do you feel that you can beat this threat once it resolves? Uh, you know, let's say they put out their one Gadwick the Wizened in like a current Azorius control deck. You know, yeah, they can resolve that and yeah you can destroy the creature because your hand is full of creature kill spells and board wipes and time wipes but will you be able to beat them having a 3-3 and drawing a bunch of cards with still a good amount of mana up is that something that you can overcome which answer is usually no realistically but no in my experience no <laughs> but then conversely like against a for example against a kaya or Zav Usurper. That resolves, and you have no creatures in your graveyard. You have maybe like six or seven cards in your graveyard. You can beat that Kaya pretty consistently, realistically. So that one's not as high up on the priority list, I suppose. Yeah, and that's that's a really big thing, like, you know, moving from the good magic player to great magic player. Because um, I know especially when I started playing Permission Control, it's like, I got mana open, just snap those things off, man. Just, nope, nope, don't want to deal with it. Get it out of here. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that doesn't usually work out the best. Yeah, and I guess one last thing on this talk about what types of counters to use, another thing also comes down to where in the game you are and how much mana you have available to you. Uh, so for example, let's say you have a hard counter, a spell pierce in hand, and a conditional two mana, like a essence scatter or a negate. Let's say you're, you have three mana up right now, and your opponent casts something that you can counter with your conditional counter spell or your hard counter spell. In that instance, it's probably better to take care of it with the conditional counter spell. But if you deal with it with the hard counter spell, next turn you can leave up a somewhat conditional counter spell or a mana leak, plus a spell pierce on top of that to win a bit of a counter war too. So that's definitely something to consider as well. Yeah, uh, one of the ways that you get around counter spells is you save up a bunch of spells of your own and you try to run them out of counter spells. If you've only got three mana open and you've got a one mana, two mana, and a three mana counter, you can do double counter spells if you use the one or the the one and the two mana counter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, precisely. Um, I was going to bring up a specific example. Say you're playing against a green deck and they're on the play turn four and they go to play a questing beast. You know, do you just use your hard counter or say you have an essence scatter um or no let's say you have a quench like because i don't yeah essence scatter is yeah. not standard legal so you have you have an absorb and you have a quench 
in, in that scenario, you, you I mean, personally, I say you use the quench because you know they can't pay for it. And next turn, if they have an untapped land, they could cast like, you know, Anissa who shakes the world. And that's really much harder to deal with. What if they can pay for it? What if they had two Lanawar elves in addition to the four forests for that questing beast? Well, what's your life total at? And do you have any removal in hand? This is where my brain goes automatically, because you know if you're still if you're still above twelve and you have a way to kill that next turn, I'd make them pay the two. Yeah, making them use up all their resources is much more meaningful than uh, just taking care of the one thing and having them deploy another threat afterwards. Even if it's just a paradise druid, it's still something that's going to come at you and chip away your life total enough that'll make you worry about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so Brian, I'll just talk about you know making your opponent if if they can pay for it and you know yeah make make them pay uh, <laughs> if they can pay for your you know taxing counter spell um, and that kind of stuff. So um, you being the the is it player, which seems to specialize in the taxing counter spells and the cheap interaction that kind of stuff, um, in some sort of control mirror match, um, are there scenarios where you? use counter spells even though you know they can pay for it or they have a counter of their own um, i guess in a way to kind of bait them out of their counter spells so you can resolve your threats because you have so few threats in your decks usually oh yeah that's definitely a thing unless you know they've got a handful more if you can poke in for an additional three or six or nine because you tax them away from being able to deal with your small threat, then that one blue mana was effectively two or three lightning bolts. Or you could, um, again, this kind of leans into like standard, you know, a lot of, you have a four mana card draw, you know, you, you try and force them into using their counter spells on their, you know, on their turn four cycle, whatever your turn, their turn, so that they cannot, so that they don't have the opportunity, they have to choose between either paying for the counterspell of using counterspell or getting their card draw and you getting to do what you want. That might not have come out right. I mean, Marcos, can you word this better? (laughs) You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, they're, you're, you're making them choose between whether they want to be able to deploy a card draw spell to get, get more of a card advantage in the long-term game with you versus forcing them to use the cards in hand and not be able to reload as quickly. So then you're more able to try to resolve a threat through a very card-light hand that would have otherwise been full of cards because they were able to snap off a chemist's insight or something. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I guess that applies more to the other side of the table when your your opponent has the counter spells. Uh, you know, specifically, it's like there, there are plenty of times playing... Um, playing even more aggressive decks where I'll just turn three, I'll just go land pass um, because I want them to choose between using a counter spell or a chemist's insight. Yep. Mm-hmm. And a scenario that's come up a lot for me is that you were able to kind of use those uh, permission spells to force your opponent to tap out in a situation where you want to be able to resolve something big next turn. Like uh, in this recent standard, I've been playing Finale of Glory as like the finisher in a Azorius control deck, and I want that thing to resolve always. So I will sit down and pick a war with my opponent on their turn when they're trying to resolve basically anything on their turn before I want to deploy that, and then just make them empty their hand, make them tap out, 
cast a spell pierce or a, a spell quench or whatever just to make it so that there's no way that they have any mana up for when I want to go for my big end game. Move. Oh man, no, you're doing it wrong. You just have to stick it to fairy and then you do it on their end step and they can't do oh, anything geez. about it. Uh, also, yes, but sometimes we're not that mm-hmm. lucky because they countered it with the Dovin's Veto. Oh, well, wait until you get another one. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like actually there's been a decent uptick in spells that can't be countered that have been printed into standard recently. Look at Six Mana Chandra. Look at actually a lot of the Gruel spells. Carnage Tyrant. RNA. Yeah, Dominaria had Car- mm-hmm. Carnage Tyrant. Domery makes it so your creature spells can't be countered. Yeah. It's a hard time out there to be an Azorius Mage. Indeed. Right. But even spells like uh, Dovin's Veto can't be countered. And. But that's, I mean, that's just in the gate that can't be countered. Is that really that bad? Oh, yes, it can be. If you're running counter spells, it sure is. Yep. Well, I mean, does it really matter if you're running counter spells when three mana Tefri's everywhere? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it does. No, I meant, like, in terms of, like, Dovin's Veto, because it's like, sure, Dovin's Veto's a one time you can't counter, whereas Tefri's just, like, a cool half your deck is unplayable. Also, yes. Ah, but if you Dovin's Veto the Tefri, (laughs) haha! Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Then they just play another one. Because they always have the other one. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) All right, so we've covered some good heuristics for doing counter spells, uh, what spells to use. Here's one that kind of goes back to the bolt the bird thing. Uh, This is much more a modern question. Do you bolt the bob? Your opponent casts a dark confidant. Do you kill it immediately, or do you let it stick around? I mean... You know, that really depends on who Bob is going to most likely be punching the clock for. Is is Bob going to be getting them to a low life total? And, you know, in Dalton's case, I think Dalton's like, yeah, have your Bob. Let him hurt you. I'll kill you faster. Good job, Bob. Good guy, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Like, realistically, even if Bob is drawing lands, like, half the time. You know, we'll, we'll assume that the deck is about half lands left. We'll assume Bob draws lands half the time. That's still every other turn. I'm getting in, like, two damage, maybe even three damage if I'm lucky. Um, you know, what What if they hit the Bloodbraid Elf and I'm really thrilled? Like, the <laughs> chances are, so, you know, if Bob's there, then I have, you know, creatures that I'm already attacking with, hopefully, because chances are they're not blocking with Bob. Like, they're playing a 2-1 for a reason. And so, you know, if we can assume that, you know, turn one, I got in like a goblin guide, turn two, I have maybe a goblin guide and, you know, a burning tree and a bushwhacker. Like I'm already, let's see, that's two, five, eight, ten damage that I've already done to them. In that case, I think they don't play the bob. (laughs) (laughs) So like, you know, I, I mean, not that they have any way to know that, you know, burning trees and stuff are coming in, but like. That's fair. Realistically. Chances are I'm not taking Bob off the table because even if it just does one, two, three points of damage, that can make a big difference. I mean, especially in your deck, you know, if Bob does say one to three damage to them, it's like they're drawing cards off him, but it's also like you're drawing a card because they're taking that damage that would be like a lightning bolt, say. If they take three damage, that basically is a card that you don't have to spend to kill them. Yeah, for sure. So then does the heuristic for dealing with a bomb on the table become more along the lines of what do you care about more? The fact that your opponent could lose some life or the fact that your opponent is drawing cards. 
I guess that I'm looking for the heuristic here of, in general, if you see a Bob, what should you do? Assume that you don't have the fire start from the super crazy aggro deck, or that you're not just trying to counter everything off the table. What would you normally want to do? I think it really depends on the style of deck you're playing and at what point in the game it is. Again, I think most often you're not going to kill the Bob if you are playing an aggro a very aggressive deck, you know, you're talking like turn four, turn five kills very consistently. Um, any sort of mid-range deck or control deck that is looking to go into the long game past turn, say five or six, I, I think you do want to kill the Bob because those cards are going to be more impactful to your opponent than that life total uh, because you're not going to be pressuring that as quickly. And then you're just, if you're just playing Tron, you're just doing Tron things, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So then again, the Bob comes down to what matters more in the matchup, their life total or the long game. If yeah. you care about the long game, get rid of Bob immediately. If you don't care about how many cards they have in hand because you want them to die before they could deploy any of them, then leave Bob around. Now, I've, I've never played a black-green style deck, and so I've never actually cast a Bob, but he gets played a lot. And there's got to be a good reason that people play him. He's worth the risk. I, I've played him enough uh, that I generally am upset to see Bob get killed for the most part. Because really, yeah, you're right. It depends on the context of the deck. But more often than not, when you see Dark Confidant, it's going to be in a green, black, or Jund shell. And they're much more focused on one-to-one -one interactions. They're going to terminate your creature it's going to be a one-to-one -one exchange and everything they do generally is going to be one-to-one -one until they get to like tireless tracker or Liliana's. And even there, like Liliana, you're discarding a card too, typically. So Bob helps you offset that one-to-one -one ratio so that you can actually stay in the game, even though you're picking apart your opponent. You mentioned something interesting there. He helps to offset the card disadvantage from Liliana and makes that, and makes that, Goodness, equality, not equality. You know the word I'm looking for. He makes the symmetrical effect less symmetrical, right? Yeah, precisely. Yep. I, I think like one of the good ways to look at it, you know, if you're playing an aggro deck, you're more focused. The focus of the game is life totals. If you're playing control and mid-range go longer decks, the focus of the game is around cards drawn. Um, I think you really have to take into account, like, you know, just to, if, if you're unsure of, you know, what to do in that situation, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, if you're like an aggro, turn, thing, turn things sideways, beat them down. You care about life total, so leave Bob alone. If you're like mid-range or control, you care about cards. So you can, you know, you want to kill the Bob because you want to see more cards than they see. Or you don't want them to see more cards than you, I guess. Is, does that sound, I don't know, like coherent? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Okay. So then when do you break that heuristic then? So let's say you're Dalton and you're playing a Naya Zoo deck and you're just bashing in with goblins and burning tramissaries. What are the times where you want to kill a Bob that's resolved on the other side of the table? Is there any situation where you want to break that? Can, can I can I take a shot at this real quick, Dalton? Of course. <laughs> okay. Um, say you were on the you were on the draw. Um, you played a turn one Nile Wild McCoddle they pushed it off a cliff and turn two they slammed the bob and um you don't have like burning tree burning tree bushwhacker 
Yeah. In that situation, you would probably want to kill the Bob because you haven't done any damage to them yet. And that Bob is probably going to draw them like cards that are going to make your game plan more difficult, correct? Yeah, so if we hearken back to the episode we've done on the beatdown, uh, that would be an example of a, a, a match where I am not being the beatdown. And so I have to adjust the game plan accordingly. And in that case, what does that mean? Well, it means I have to make sure my opponent doesn't have the card advantage they want so that, you know, I go from being beat down to being the really poor excuse of a control deck. <laughs> control nonetheless. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian, it looks like you want to share a bit. Uh, I was actually just going to say basically that. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> right down to the bad control and everything. Having having <laughs> played another creature aggressive deck against your Nyazu deck, I can say that, like, you can play the control shell pretty well, man. I mean, when... when yeah, your resources... <laughs> yeah, poor elves. Getting rid of theirs. Oof. Yeah, I was like, oh, here's my turn one elf. Oh, it got, it got bolted. Okay, here's my turn two elf. Oh, he got bolted too, okay. And here's a wild coddle that outreaches yep. everything else that you have. Yep. Good luck. That's the goal. Cool. All right, and then we got one more example that we're going to touch on for a general heuristic. And this one's kind of interesting. This one is discussing Ghost Quarter and Vendillion Clicks and when your timing should be for activating your Ghost Quarter or casting a Vendillion Click. Uh, more often than not, you see people talking about the heuristic of Vendillion Click in your draw step after you've drawn your card for the turn. Some people will try to go quarter in the draw step as well. What's the reasoning for that heuristic and why is that the optimal time for this heuristic to be around? That's a game of what, like fractions of a percent? I mean, let's be, let's be real here. The times that they matter, that fraction is great. Okay, as someone that despises playing against blue-white control in modern, Vendillion click in the draw step is way worse than any other time during the turn. Because they always take a smasher or a thought not seer. I was gonna say way worse for you. <laughs> way worse for yep. me. Cause I oh like always draw something good for the turn. So obviously the idea here is that uh you know, a card like Vendillion Click, you see the card and then once you choose to, you know, quote unquote take it away by putting it on the bottom, they do get to draw another card. And yes. with Ghost Quarter, when you destroy the land, they do get the opportunity to search for a basic. And so the idea with the Vendillion click is that by doing it in the draw step, they've already drawn a card for turn. You get a better sense of what it is that they are going to have available to them. You are forcing them to use counter spells on their turn so that the mana is not open when it comes back around to you. Or you're forcing them to make a decision based on being a, hey, surprise, I'm looking at your hand now. With the Ghost Quarter, what you're shooting for here is that if you ghost quarter them in their draw step as opposed to their upkeep, there's a chance that they have drawn a basic land that turn, and now they no longer have the ability to search for it because it's not in their library, it's in their hand. And then you just wastelanded your opponent. Feels good, man. Yeah, and I mean, with decks like humans or these lists that are only running maybe one, two, at most three basic lands, that can be a big deal. And I think a lot of that is really important to understand what the matchup looks like is, you know, if I am going for, if I'm going against Tron, then yeah, using a Ghost Quarter on one of their Tron lands in their upkeep versus their draw step probably doesn't have as much difference if they don't have any forests out. Why? 
It's because I believe the majority of Tron decks run, what, five basic forests? Four or five. Yeah, four or five. So the chances that all four or all five of their forests are in hand probably doesn't make much of a difference. Mm -hmm. And so there's not as much of a reason for me to do that. Whereas if Tron already has four forests on the battlefield by whatever rare chance, (laughs) then that ghost quarter feels a lot better. And I think Brian touched on something really important here, which is this is only a very small percentage thing that you're leveraging here. Like the amount of times they're going to draw that one basic land that they could have gotten with a ghost quarter is very low, but it happens. And I think that's really important to what we're trying to accomplish here, which is we want to just be better magic players. We can't be trying to find things that will get us 10, 15% on our average win percentage anymore because hopefully we're at a point where it's not that easy to do that. The things that matter, the things that add up are these smaller percentage things that help us get overall better win percentage because we've maximized basically everything that we can do with this. Yeah, and you know, you're talking little percentages, but you know, you consider a winning record is 51% and what John Finkel only has a 61, 62% career like win, like win rate. That's not super high. I mean, you know, the difference between making top eight of a GP and, you know, not is less than 1%. When you're talking, oh, it's only a tiny little percentage, that is technically correct. But those are, you know, those can change whether whether you get into the top eight or not even cash events. I mean, yeah, it, it can be, Definitely. you know, fractions of a percent can be like a very big difference. Um, and as somebody that's been on the other side of ghost quarters in the draw step and Vendillion clicks in the draw step, um, those percentages, when they come up, they're huge. I'm going to go real quick. Sorry, Brian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what you are doing. <laughs> Marcos, um, so you and I obviously have worked quite a few large events. Um, mm-hmm. How many times have you heard the head judge say, and an eighth? By 0.03 <laughs> opponent match win points. Yep. How often does that happen? All That's the actually time. the point that I was going to make. Yeah. All the time. Yes, Brian is absolutely correct. It's only, you know, a tenth of a percentage. It's only a fifth of a percentage. But that is, as Will mentioned, the difference between 8th and ninth place. That is the difference between cashing at 32nd and going home empty-handed at 33rd yeah exactly and you know another way to look at it is what is the downside to playing that way like you know playing quote-unquote like the optimal way with even if the tiny percentages and all that other stuff um there's no downside to waiting to their draw step as opposed to their upkeep it's it's like it's pure upside right i mean I, i can't think of the only thing I can think of is like the Vendillion click if they if they have a counter spell when they untap, but that'd be the difference between you doing it on your turn and their turn, not upkeep and draw step. You know that right. that's about the only thing. But you're talking very specific yeah. matchups and that kind of stuff. So in general, I feel like it's just pure upside, even if it's fractions of a percent. So absolutely, yeah. Because I think, like you mentioned, you know, the only theoretical downside is what if they drew the counter spell that turn. That is your only, you know, potential downside to waiting on the Vendillion and draw step versus the Vendillion and upkeep. Yeah, and I have one very, very odd example, and it's not with like upkeep draw step. <laughs> it's just more so a card that was played that for some reason was played. Um, 
And I don't, I'm sure we've, we've talked about uh, Jonathan Hobbs on here before. He's actually been doing pretty well in the Star City Games. Um, but when he first started playing the Jeskai Control list in Modern, what, last summer? It's been over a year. So. Yeah, he was he was one of the people that really helped bring it to the forefront. Um, he was telling me about how he just completely annihilated his Ponza opponent uh, because, you know, his opponent went Forest, uh, Forest Arbor Elf, turned to Utopia Sprawl, and he tried to Stone Rain him. And uh, Hobbs had a swerve, which redirects. <laughs> it basically just redirects the target of a spell. So his Pons opponent was like, yeah, I'll blow up one of your lands. And Hobbs said, no, I'm going to swerve it and blow up your only land that has a Utopia Sprawl on it. <laughs> so it's a very weird example. You had an Arbor Elf that untaps that land. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. So... That's not something that I think will ever come up. It's just a really cool story. But it's like, if you think your opponent might be playing some obscure spells, you know, like that, then it might be correct to Ghost Quarter them on your turn when you know you can get rid of the land. Um, sure. You know. Very again, corner case, but... Yeah, oh, hey, super yeah. corner case. Like, I can't even see the corner from here case. <laughs> I, I think to get into a more mainstream example, while we're not clicking anybody in their draw step, I think we talked about in a previous episode using removal spells on your turn versus on your opponent's turn. Um, and maybe they have a blossoming defense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I definitely think that that's why something like the blue-green flash deck had so much leverage yeah. in standard for a while there was just so the amazing. ability to never play magic on your turn. And... Yeah, you have to determine whether or not it's better to try to counter their spell on their turn so that they can't hold anything open for your turn. Or maybe you try to deploy something on their turn or on your turn because you want it to resolve and you don't want them to, you know, get the final say. It's so many decision trees and those decision trees alone made so much room for that deck to come out and really have a pretty damn dominating performance. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the big reasons that deck did it really well is because the majority of the removal, you know, decks running lots of removal, it was all sorcery based wrath removal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like yeah, there was some spot removal, but like you know, the Esper control decks when that deck came came up and uh, started dominating, they were running four Kaiserass. That was their that was their plan to get rid of creature decks. So when yep. you know when your plan is basically. Okay, pay two mana, get rid of your wrath, flash in a brineborn, cutthroat, um, kill you. Like, yeah, that seems pretty good. <laughs> yeah, when control tries to tap out to take care of your stuff, that's a problem. Well, I guess that sums it up. We hopefully we gave you guys some good a number of heuristics to start adhering to, but also made you really question some of the heuristics that you might be following now and start asking yourself where those really matter versus when you might need to break from them to actually get that extra percentage to your win percentage. So hopefully this helped a little bit. But with that, I guess we'll move on to the weekly segment of the week. So Marcos, I'm bring the weekly segment of the week, trademark, to you because what we've been talking about today has all been heuristics. We've been talking about stories and rules of thumb that help guide you in gameplay. 
but you have been sharing with us a lot recently something that doesn't just rely on, you know, your story and word of mouth and maybe not a confirmation bias to not so perfect memory. Uh, you have something that I enjoy, that you enjoy, that we should all enjoy called data. Uh, and I want you to share with us what it is you've been using to help keep track of your games, because I think that this is a great feature and could really help not only myself, but quite a few different Magic players out there. All right. So for this week, we're going to be chatting about a tool that I've been using and I've been sharing with everybody in our Facebook chat. Uh, it's a tool I found. I even forget where I first heard about this. I think it might have been from Limited Resources. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. But the tool that I'm referring to is the website called untapped.gg. And what a fitting name. Now, untapped.gg is a very sweet site uh, where you can actually track your arena data. Uh, and it's a really cool site. Uh, we'll include uh, links to snapshots of this in the show notes. Uh, but really cool thing about it is once you link it to your MTG Arena account, what it does is tracks all of your games and gives you really detailed statistics. Uh, one of the ones I really like is the graph showing your progression up and down the ladder. Uh, it actually highlights different sections based off of which deck you chose to play. So... Uh, for example, lately I've been running a Gruel list in Historic, and I'm able to see specifically which games I played on the ladder that shows kind of like a stock market uh, up and down progression. Uh, which segments of that? Yeah, my my MTG stonks <laughs> on the ladder. <laughs> you get to see specifically which of those stonks were each of the individual decks that I played that week. Uh, and this actually goes back to however far you want it. So you can highlight uh, your progression through the current season. And I can see how many games I've played with this deck, what my record is in any given time frame. Uh, and it gets super detailed, brings you to your actual matchup percentages. Like I can see with this Gruel deck, I'm 100% win rate in four matches against Blue White in Historic, which is kind of awesome. And I can see all of this laid out super easy in front of you uh for what we like to do around here where we're trying to figure out how to get better at playing the game and especially trying to metagame in different formats this website is fantastic for figuring out how you're actually doing in a way that's not just kind of like you telling stories because i mean all of our perspectives tend to shift a little bit whenever we're playing and it can tilt a little bit differently than what reality actually is, you know? Wait, so you mean confirmation bias is a thing? Wait, confirmation That's bias totally is a thing. totally a thing. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure every one of us. Yeah, I know I've personally done the thing where I'm like, oh, you know, I just went 5-0 with this deck, but that doesn't include the the four matches I just decided to scoop to, like, green-white ramp or something. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about this green-white ramp deck. Hold on. <laughs> it's a thing. It ramps. It does It does things. Hey, if Karametra didn't cost five. Now I'm thinking that deck. Yes? Both. Oh, she's more, she's more than five dollars. Is she really? Probably. She costs seven fifty. 
She's one of the original gods. They're all, um, oh, they except all for up. except for Farika, um, are more than like, they're like in the ten dollar range. Unless you're Perforos. Oh, Farika. That's like fifteen. Woof. Yep. I said the biggest thing about the SunTap GG thing is like, oh wait, now I have, I have empirical data showing that I should play different decks. Got it. Yeah, in fact, I'll actually I'm actually looking at the screen right now uh, for all my history for I'm just looking at the current season, which I believe started uh, December 1st and now it's currently December 16th. So about 16, two weeks of game data. And I can see very much that, uh, for example, when I when I played the black white list that Will was doing very well with, I went one in four for a 20 percent win rate. And I immediately was like, this is not the deck for me. I'm sure Will is killing it with it, but I cannot do anything with he this. He Will's killing it against the the decks he doesn't scoop to, like uh, Green-White Ramp. I added two more Kaios to the list. Sweet. I think I had oh, three Oh, top Kais secret deck deck. Holding out on us here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just... No, I opened... I, op I got enough gold to open two packs, and I got a Mythic Wild card, and then my wheel thing, my reward was a Mythic Wild card, so I got two for one pack. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's great, though, and my, my opponent just plays a Cauldron Familiar, and I'm like, well, my deck is just gonna win. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, I can also see that I played a, a total of five matches with a Simic Ramp deck in Standard, and I went two and three, which isn't terrible but again not fantastic and then i played a blue green flash deck uh and i believe that was the one from the mc and i went 40 percent with that four and six out of 10 total matches and then literally the rest of the month i said yeah i'm not dealing with standard and so the rest of my games were all with historic rule where i played 25 matches so far and i can see here it's currently 21 and 4 with a lot of very linear progressions up the ladder, which is really awesome to see. You totally killed me making a joke about how you just shouldn't play standard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> I mean, this, the evidence shows that I do not do well in this current standard format, so I'm off it. Fair. Can't blame you. Are, are you using the downloaded widget app? I don't know what it would be. Uh, or are you just pumping straight into the website? I believe you have to download an app to your computer to have it read your MTG Arena log. Uh, and then from there, it pulls all that data into the website. where you, That's where you can look into the really deep uh, statistics. You can see your overall matchup. You can see your color performance. Uh, you can see the versions of your deck. You know, If you tweak a couple of cards here and there over time, I see that I have two versions of this deck because I know I switched some things out after the banning. Um, but yeah, it's really, really detailed. And for somebody like me who loves statistics and looking at numbers and trying to find trends in what you're actively doing in the moment, this is just phenomenal. And it can also work for uh, constructed or different events. I don't know if it works for limited as well, but there you're not as worried because it's a lot more individual setup so so yeah that is our weekly segment of the week plugging untapped.gg yes no trademark on untapped.gg no, no. <laughs> no but they probably do not they us. probably do i don't know register it and find out 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) With that horrible piece of legal advice, I think we're going to call it there for the week. Thank you all. Oh, they have a copyright, not a trademark. Sure. I'm going to add an addendum. I am not a lawyer, and this is in no way actual legal advice, just to kind of cover all our bases here. Never claim to be a lawyer podcast. If you want real legal advice, check out Legal Legal on YouTube. I'm not a real lawyer. I've just played one on TV. (laughs) Aight, peace. (laughs) Peace out, A-Tone Tone. Absolutely not, (laughs) V-Tone. Go away. Well, with that, thank you all for joining us, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of the Day 3 Podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you. Is a face palm actually audible? If you do it hard Depends enough. Depends on how hard you palm. <laughs> Marcos has a great story about spell pierce. <laughs> Legacy? Mono red? I don't remember this story. What? It was game two because you had lost game one and you're, and you're playing sneak and show. And yeah. you had... Um, you had a... I think you had... Yeah, you had a spell pierce for their turn one chalice. And you were on the play. And you're like, awesome, got him. And they went Lotus Petal, land, chalice on one, you went spell pierce, they went cool, double spirit guide, paid the two. <laughs> oh, God, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> two scryfall.